0: This is episode number 23 with Jack Canfield. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe to uncover the habits, mindsets, tools rituals that they have used to become world-class so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? After years of studying what makes successful people different, Jack Canfield is now the number one success coach in the world. And over the last 30 years has used his compelling message, empowering energy and unique coaching style to help hundreds of thousands of individuals achieve their dreams. He graduated from Harvard with a master's degree in psychological education and is one of the earliest champions for peak performance Developing specific methodologies and results oriented activities to help people take on greater challenges and produce breakthrough results. He holds the Guinness World Record for having seven books simultaneously on the New York Times bestseller list and has been inducted into the National Speakers Association Speaker. Hall of Fame. Pretty freaking amazing, right? In today's episode, we chat about his journey from school teacher to number one success coach in the world, what success is to him, how to find your purpose in life, the power of presence, how to go from where you are to where you want to be how to achieve your goals while still remaining present and enjoying the journey, how to deal with comparison, the key to life, four stages of spiritual development, the phrase that will change everything for you. I have stolen this one and I will be implementing it into my life. The top success principles of highly successful people, what the hour of power is and why you need to start doing it, the mirror exercise that will radically rock your self-care and self-love, plus so much more. Everything that we mention will be in the show notes, and that is at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 23. And without further ado, let's dive into this amazing interview with the one and only Jack Canfield. Jack, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: (laughs) I had a uh, standard breakfast. I I eat a blender drink, which has a protein powder made from peas. It has a number of other vitamin C powders and things in there. Blueberries, a little bit of orange juice and a lot of water.
0: Nice. Now, I am very excited to have you on the show today because you are one of the top success coaches in the world, and you help people go from where they are to where they want to be. When did you know that you were going to do this and inspire and help and support so many people?
1: Well, my career started out as a high school teacher in an all-black inner-city high school in Chicago, Illinois. And I became very interested very quickly in why my students weren't motivated to learn more than I was in teaching history. And so I began to study with different people to see what I could do to learn to motivate them. And I did. And as a result of that, I got hired by the school to start teaching other teachers. And then eventually the school district. And then eventually I left that and started running around the whole country teaching teachers how to motivate kids, how to build their self-esteem. And at that point, I still had no idea I was going to be doing what I was doing now, but I went back to university to get a doctorate, and I wrote a book at the same time called 100 Ways to Enhance Self-Concept in the Classroom. And as a result of that, I started getting invited to speak just nationwide, and the book took off. It sold 400,000 copies, which in education is unheard of. And Around that time, I took a workshop with a woman named Jean Houston, who is just an amazing shaman. She's got an IQ off the chart. She graduated from high school when she was 14. And she had us do this exercise where we were lying on the ground and we had to go and just take a little piece of dirt and roll it into a ball and then swallow it and pretend it was a seed and out of that grew a plant and when we came back to share everyone else was sharing things like you know my plant became a rose bush or you know became a, a little a orchid or or a lily and mine it was bamboo <laughs> it was like if you know anything about bamboo once it grows it it just starts spreading out forever and once it gets it's very difficult to stop its growth and eventually in my image it was surrounding the whole world and sending out shooters to the moon and i i didn't share it cuz i felt the Felt like a megalomaniac or something like you know what what's going on here everyone else having these nice small images and i've got this big thing going on and later that same week in the same seminar we had to write a poem you we just make up a language and write a poem in it. And then without thinking, translate it into English. And mine was like the great Russian, you know, general was sweeping across the plain with his armies, you know, and everyone else was like the lone whippoorwill was singing in the forest. And finally I shared and I said, Gene, I think, I think I need help. I think I'm crazy. I think I'm going to grow up and be some kind of, you know, crazy, uh, I don't know, egomaniac, you know. And she said, no, you just have a huge destiny. You're meant to work with lots and lots of people and have a world global impact. And it wasn't until a few years later when I wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul, and it took off, and in the first few years sold 10 million copies, and then eventually got translated into 51 languages, and now there's 500 million books around the world with the name Chicken Soup for the Soul on them. And it was then that I realized, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to be playing at a very high level. So it was probably around 1993 or 4 or 5 that that happened. And then ever since then, I've surrendered to the fact that I am a global teacher and I travel all over the world. And sometimes I work with groups that are 10,000 people, 20,000 people. And um, it's it's exciting. It's what I'm meant to do. I feel comfortable doing it. But if you told me that when I was starting as a high school teacher, I'd be doing this. I'm not sure I would have got up in the morning. It would have overwhelmed me.
0: Mm. And one of your books that I love is The Success Principles. I feel like success for a lot of people can look different, but what does success mean and look like for you?
1: Well, you know, for many years, Melissa, I I thought success was, you know, being able to create whatever result you wanted in life. In other words, if you wanted to be a famous teacher, if you wanted to write a best-selling book, if you wanted to be a millionaire, if you wanted to live in Bali, whatever it was, whatever experience or result you wanted to create if you created it you were successful but about mm, let would say five to ten years ago i started to change my definition of success to fulfilling your soul's purpose i believe that everybody everybody's born with an inborn purpose that is our our job our our manifest destiny to fulfill that purpose and if we do that we're successful. And for some people, that might be writing poetry. For someone else, that might be singing songs. For someone else, that might be being a mother of eight children and raising them drug-free. For someone else, it might be you know, being the CEO of a company. And I think it goes deeper than that. Those are forms through which we express our purpose. I, I'll tell you, my life purpose, as I understand it, is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in a context of love and joy in harmony with the highest good of all concern. So if I unpack that to inspire people, that's what the Chicken Soup for the Soul stories do. That's what I do when I tell inspirational stories on stage. To empower people is what I do in my workshops. What I did with my book, The Success Principles, is give people tools that they can use that when they use them, it actually allows them to manifest what it is that's their highest vision for themselves. And I think everybody has... A vision of what they would like their life to look like. And if it's aligned with their soul's purpose, it's a lot easier to do and they're going to get there faster. So for me, I added in a context of love and joy because that's my two highest qualities. If you were to know me for a long time, you'd go, wow, he's really a very loving guy and he loves to be in a state of joy and have fun. I'm a little irreverent. I like to, to play and, and, and all of that. And I added in harmony with the highest good of all concern after the big meltdown we had on Wall Street, you know, about nine years ago, that basically took down the world economy for a while. And if the people there had been concerned about people other than themselves, not just their own greed, we would have avoided that. And so that's what I'm about. And everyone else has their own purpose they need to fulfill. But if you do that, then you're successful. And I think that, you know, everyone has to take the responsibility to use the tools that exist out there in the world, things I teach, I imagine you do as well, and many other people do, to discover, and the word discover means to take the cover off of what is already inside. We don't need to pour anything in anybody. We need to remove the limiting beliefs, the blocks, the um, the fears that are getting in the way. I love to tell this story about being in, in Bangkok, and I went and saw this uh, statue called the Golden Buddha. And it's a a ten-and-a-half-foot-tall solid gold Buddha. So imagine that, taller than either of us. And it's about several tons of gold. And it's worth, you know, a hundred-plus million dollars if you were just melt it down and make rings and jewelry out of it. And when I was there looking at it, there was a little thing on the side of it, you know, a little um, explanation of of the golden Buddha. And it said that in 1954 – they did not know there was such a thing as a golden Buddha. They thought they just had this big clay Buddha that was sitting there. And they had to move it because there was a highway expansion coming through, and they needed to move this little temple and move the Buddha. And as they were lifting it up, it was very heavy. Uh, it it the, the crane didn't realize it was to be as heavy as it was, and so it kind of fell back down to earth and a crack went up through it. And it started to rain at that point in time, and the monk who was in charge of this put a big canvas over it to keep it dry. That night, he came out to see if it was staying dry, and he shined his flashlight in under the canvas, and something reflected back from inside the crack. And so, with a little trepidation and a lot of curiosity, the next morning when the rain stopped, he took a chisel in the back where if he was wrong, it wouldn't be a big deal. He chipped into it and discovered, lo and behold, there was gold inside, and eventually It took off the entire clay covering, and here was this golden Buddha. And their best theory is that about 300 years earlier, when the Burmese were attacking Thailand, they thought that uh, the monk basically covered up this gold Buddha, which was very valuable. They didn't want it melted down as a spoil of war with clay, and they painted it so it would look like a worthless clay Buddha. I think all the monks were massacred when 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 the Burmese came in, and therefore they lost the secret, died with them. And so it was by accident we rediscovered. We took the cover off this golden Buddha. And I think each of us is like that golden Buddha. We have an essence, whether it's a Christ consciousness or call your soul, your essence, your your inner being, uh, your self with a capital S. That is the essence of who we are. That's been covered up by our childhood wounds, where we made decisions and decided we weren't enough, or we were, you know, couldn't be sexual, or we couldn't ask for what we wanted, or it wasn't okay to to be wealthy or whatever it might have been. And so it's for each of us to to, recu- to discover um, that essence of who we are. And once we do that, then if we have the courage to pursue it, which often means following our bliss, following our joy, you know, following the um, things we're attracted to that often don't make rational sense, then what happens is we get to feel uh, a level of contentment and fulfillment that goes way beyond what most people – normally think of as success, which is just financial and um, you know things and power and so forth. We have this essence of us that goes beyond our ego. Um, and what I'll often do when I'm doing workshops is I do I use muscle testing and I'll have someone come up on stage and I'll have them think of a goal they have and could be anything at all. And don't tell me about it, but just think about it. And then I have them put their arm out, and I'll muscle test that arm. And their arm, I'll I'll say, just think about, firstly, how that goal will serve you. No one else, only what you get out of achieving that goal. And as they're focusing on that, and I push down on their arm, their arm's extremely weak and goes right down to their side. Then I'll say, I want you to keep thinking about the same goal. I don't care what it is. It could be having a Mercedes-Benz. It could be living in a nice house. But how will it serve others? If you achieve that goal, only think about how it will serve others. And I pushed down their arm. Their arm is totally strong. And so it's not necessarily the goal. It's where I call it our come from. Where are you coming from? Are you coming from ego and greed or are you coming from service? So you can sell real estate out of the need to make a lot of money and be rich and famous and powerful. Or you can sell real estate because you want to put people in the right home or you want to make sure that they get, they get in the neighborhood where their kids are going to be safe or the company is going to be in a really good um, you know, office building. When you come from service, it doesn't really matter what the goal is. Obviously, if you're making bombs and killing people, it does. But in general, most of the things that we focus on in life is is we are – I think we're designed to be of service to each other. None of us can survive without others. You know, none of us – Pump our own petroleum and refine it into gasoline and make our own cars and, you know, all of that. So we need each other to grow food and to be doctors and to maintain our airplanes and to, you know, create music for us and maintain our computer systems and so on and so forth. And if we come from a place of doing that because we want to contribute, then what I find is that everything always works out. If we come from a place of I'm doing it because I'm wanting to, aggrandize myself because I feel inadequate, uh, then it tends to not be so good. There's a balance in life. You know, we inhale and we exhale. And as we exhale, let's call that service. And when we inhale, we're taking care of ourselves. You know, they always say on the airplanes, you know, put your face mask on first if the oxygen mask comes down, and then put it on your job. Often I see people over there that are transcendent, they're totally loving everything that, you know, they don't own anything personally, they just exude radiance. But even they will take time away from their students to meditate, to read, to go and retreat, to eat, to sleep, and so forth. So there has to be this balance of taking care of myself And also taking care of you, Um, and if we're if we're only taking care of ourselves, then that doesn't work really well. And if we're only taking care of others, we become codependent, and we often end up resenting the people we're taking care of. Now, as one evolves in consciousness, obviously there's less need to take care of what we call the basic needs, the low-level ego needs that we have when we're children to be, you know, to know that we're adequate and do all that stuff. But basically, I think. It, it, You've you got to be careful that you don't just get into a codependency and think you're actually just being of service when, in fact, you're denying your own self the rest, the need for, you know, pleasure and fun and and, and all of that.
0: Mm, so it's very much about looking after yourself, filling yourself up, and also being of service to others. Absolutely. So ultimately, our life's purpose is to grow and serve. And like you mentioned before, the different forms that we do that, whether it's poetry or motherhood, it's all with the grand intention to serve. Is is that what you're saying?
1: Being authentic is of service to others. You know, I always say to to parents, the best thing you can do for your children is to grow yourselves and be authentic people. Like my wife is someone who, when I first met her, was always comparing herself to me because I was a famous author and I'm running around the world doing all these things and I'm on television and blah, blah, blah. And she was, you know, a massage therapist and a yoga teacher and very local and didn't have a huge impact in the world that way. But... Her gift, her purpose is to inspire other people to be themselves by being her authentic self fully. She's the most spontaneous and authentic person I've ever met in my life. She just literally does herself fully, and she doesn't pretend to be what she's not. And in that process, she has so many people who she has inspired to fully accept themselves the way they are and to express that fully in the world. So it's not like she's going to show up in Wikipedia or who's who. But the fact is, she's having impact on hundreds of people that she meets. And if you're doing you and expressing yourself fully, you will evolve. And as you do that, you're serving others. If you're a baker, you're making baked goods for people. If you're a good auto mechanic, you're helping people's cars run. If you're a poet, as we said, you're helping people see often the deeper meanings behind things. And and, and our poets and our songwriters are always bringing us back to the essence of life and away from the things that are destructive and so forth. And we need everyone. I think the big challenge is that, um, I read a quote about this recently, I can't remember it, but I remember reading and thinking, I'm going to have to write that down, was something about how money distorts Value of people, meaning that a public school teacher doesn't make as much money as the CEO of, of Dow Chemical, which is out there killing people. And so we think the person making, you know, a million dollars a year is somehow more important than the teacher who's making $40,000 a year or the poet who's making $8,000 a year. But every single person, if they fully be themselves and follow their um, curiosity, follow the things they're attracted to, and express the things they're interested in. Develop the skills that they want to develop. They're contributing, and unfortunately, in our culture, we often look down on the people that aren't doing it the way we think they should be doing it, or not doing it in a way that makes a lot of money or brings them a lot of um, fame and attention, and so on and so forth. But literally, you know, even even homeless people are there, allowing the rest of us to practice generosity and practice compassion and without them we wouldn't develop those qualities. So everybody has a function.
0: Yeah, we start to compare ourselves to others. Well, that's what their path looks like. You know, what you're saying when you are so authentic and and true to yourself, we've got to let go of that way that we think it should look.
1: Yes. You know, I think we need to let go of, of the way we think anything should look, any person or any anything. It's when we are resisting reality that we get in trouble because reality always wins, as Byron Katie likes to say. Well, let's talk about comparison for just a minute. I, I talk a lot about that in my workshop, and I actually read a, a piece where Robert Redford was. Uh, he said he had just left Paul Newman, and he was saying, "You know, my God, the guy looks, you know, twenty years younger than he is. He races cars when he wants to. He makes movies when he wants to. He's incredibly handsome. Has those amazing blue eyes." He said, by the time we got home, I wanted to kill myself. Now this is Robert Redford, arguably one of the better looking people on the planet. So I'll ask my students, I'll say, how many of you have ever compared yourself to someone else? And almost every hand in the room goes up. And I'll say, how many of you have ever come out exactly even when you do that? Not one hand stays up. We either come out better than, and then we think, well, there's no point I should hang out with that person because I'm better than them. Or I come out worse than, and I think, well, I'm not worthy of hanging out with that person. So comparison always creates separation. It separates us from each other because we think we're better than or worse than. So I say comparison is the fast track to misery. We want to give it up and just literally be yourself. I, I, I ran a workshop in Hawaii a number of years ago. I co-led it with a Zen master by the name of Genpo Roshi. And he said to the group, he said, do you want to know the secret he said, you could meditate as a Zen meditator for 20 years, and this is what you'd end up with. And I'll tell you this, so you can avoid a lot of time. He said, what you come up with is be yourself. Now, think about that. That It's so simple. Now, it's 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 not always easy because we've been so conditioned by everything. But the trick is that egoic self you're talking about that feels it's inadequate and therefore needs to be better than people, have better cars, and do all, you know, bigger house and a plane and the boat and more rewards and and all the stuff we do to to put out to the world that we're we're worthy but if you really have that worthiness inside of yourself you don't need any of that and weirdly enough in my life when I stopped chasing any of that more of it came you know I, I literally have nowhere to put another award or a plaque or any of that stuff it's just ridiculous but I don't need it and when it seems like when you don't need it, it's when you most get it. So it's very strange um, um, paradox in life.
0: Mm. My mom used to say to me growing up, be your own best friend. As a young girl, I thought, I don't need to be my own best friend. I've got three best friends. And I didn't really grasp the potency of what she was actually saying. And it's kind of like what you said be yourself or be you, that's kind of what my mom was saying. Like, really, you know, have your own back and just be the best version of yourself. And, you know, I look back now and and I'm so grateful that she said that to me, even though at the time it just kind of went over my head. But essentially, that's what you're saying is the key to life.
1: You know, we all went through the teenage years and it's very tough on kids, you know, middle school and high school where you're not quite sure who you are yet. And everyone, you want to fit in, you want to belong, you want people to like you, you don't want to be alone, you don't want to be ostracized. And anyone that's different, you know, maybe more sensitive, more musical, more, you know, intelligent in the sense of being a nerd, whatever, um, often gets marginalized. And so we we, we try to avoid that by being what other people want us to be. And ultimately, you know, we have to let that go and, and come back to ourself. Obviously, some parents like yours, you know, were giving you good coaching, but it's still hard when you're out there, you know, away from home for eight or nine or 10 hours a day trying to fit in.
0: Those teenage years and early 20s when you do feel like you're not quite sure where you fit in the world and you might feel a little bit out of place, what would you say to someone who's currently at that stage in their life?
1: Well, the first thing is it does end. <laughs> That's yeah. the first thing I would say. I actually almost wrote a book once called It's Not the End of the World. And I, I did it because I was working with a lot of teenagers. My sister, uh, Kim, uh, was the co-author of all the chickens who for the teenage soul books. And so I spent a lot of time with her and a lot of her uh, friends were teenagers. And, and they, she was the mom where everyone would go to their house to hang out. And, um, you know, if they got cut from the basketball team, or didn't make the cheerleading team, or their boyfriend broke up with them, or no one invited them to the prom, or girls would say things like, well, I used to be Mary's first best friend, now I'm only her second best friend. It seemed like it was the end of the world. And, you know, we all know, because we live through it, that it's not the end of the world. You know, we we, we get on, and, um, you know, it's, it's, I always used to teasingly tell kids who weren't, you know, getting all A's, I said, do you know what they call a person who's Graduates bottom of his class at the Harvard Medical School, and they go, "No, what?" And I'd say, "Doctor." And so, you know, the the reality is, when you're a kid, it everything just seems so much bigger. Like that zit on your nose looks like a neon light that's flashing on and off that most people don't even notice. But it's it it's hard. So I would say, first of all, just you know, this the pain of this will uh, subside, you'll, you'll get past it. And the other thing is that you've got to have the courage to be yourself because if you're trying to be what you think people want, and then you never really feel like you're accepted because you're playing this act, and they're, they're in love with your act, and you're always in this place of, well, if I was really me, they might reject me. So you're in a sphere all the time of being yourself. And so ultimately, what, what you have to do is choose to be yourself, and those people that will be attracted to who you are will be attracted to you, and they will come to you. And, you know, it's difficult to, in, in today's world, in a lot of countries, to say you're gay or to not be interested in what everyone else is interested in because maybe you want to study dinosaurs or you're interested in physics, you know, or you're a mathematician um, or you're the poet or the, you're making weird music that no one else understands. But those people are the ones who grow up. And they end up being the Bill Gateses of the world and the Steven Spielberg's of the world and some of the great music producers of the world and the Bob Dylan's of the world and so forth. And so I would just encourage them to, um, you know, look for adults who are somewhat like what you are and know that you can become that at that point at some point.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, putting up that facade, it's exhausting and it's not sustainable. True. So I wanted to touch on success again, like the word successful kind of feels like a bit of a destination, mm-hmm. implying that when we get there, we will be successful or full of success. But isn't it about the journey and your level of success growing with you as you grow on the, on the journey? Does that make sense?
1: Totally. Totally. I always say don't focus on the destination as much as enjoying the journey along the way. Because when you get to the destination, you're just in another moment of the now. And, you know, life seems to be like whatever you think is going to be the thing that fulfills you, you get there. And then, like, with very soon you want something else. I remember when I moved into—I live in a fairly big house because Chicken Super for the Soul was very successful. I always wanted to own a pool, pool table. So I bought this pool table, and I, I would say for a month or two, it was really a great thing. I played a lot of pool. Now it's where we fold the clothes. It's where we lay <laughs> out books, you know, <laughs> wrap Christmas presents, you know, whatever. And so whatever that thing you think that's going to give you the ultimate fulfillment, you know, the, the big house, the, 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 the best-selling book status, the largest podcast on the planet, you know, whatever it is, uh, you get there and you realize this isn't it. And so then you want something else. And that's part of the process. We're attracted to the next thing because it forces us to grow and to develop skills and develop qualities in ourselves, like compassion and perseverance and focus and so forth. So I think the main thing is to definitely enjoy the ride and to know that you're going to—one of my friends said you can't learn less. Every day you learn something. You never wake up tomorrow, knowing less than you knew today, you make up, you may wake up realizing you don't know as much as you thought you did, but you never know less. You know, you always know more unless you get Alzheimer's or something like that. And so the, the, the trick is to be happy on your journey and realize that the real reason to set goals and to achieve them is not the thing you get at the end. You know, I I really have to focus on this with my students in a very, you know, what should I say, very emphatic way, which is anything you can get that you think you want at the end of it that you're calling success can be taken away from you. Your reputation can be ruined. We've seen that with a lot of people that had affairs and scandals and people that we thought were great that are now in jail. Bill Cosby would be a great example of that in America with all of his scandals and what's going on at Fox News and all this sexual harassment and people getting fired. Your house can burn down. Your bank account can get wiped out. Your trophy wife or husband could die or leave you for someone else. So there's nothing that can't be taken away in the external. But what can never be taken away is who you became in the process of achieving those goals. So I say, you know, either set big goals or surrender to the goals that are coming through you, like inner guidance and so forth, which usually require you to risk and to grow and to, you know, go out there and stretch. And realize that the real mastery that you get from that, where you learn to master your fears, master your emotions, learn to control your thoughts so you can be more positive, learn to enroll people in your vision, learning how to master money and finances, and learning how to keep healthy in a world that's you know increasingly toxic and so forth, as you master these things, that can never be taken away from you. The wisdom you gain, the skills you develop, the qualities that you enhance inside yourself, these are the real payoffs. And um, once you get that, then you don't have to be so attached. You can still have nice things. I have a lot of nice stuff, but I'm not attached to it. Uh, because I know it's not the essence of what this whole game is about. It's about me learning to grow myself. And that opportunity exists in every moment of my life. And even if all my books went away and my reputation was ruined and my wife died and my kids abandoned me, I'd still be who I am with everything I've learned. And I'd be able to handle that because I've learned to handle pretty much any kind of adversity that could possibly happen.
0: Mm. So if it's. About the journey, how do we stay present in the moment, day to day? We've got these goals, like you said, but we can't be attached to them. For me, I'm shifting more and more into not striving and simply surrendering to what the universe puts in front of me. So how do we really keep coming back to the present moment whilst achieving our goals in life?
1: Well, I think practices like meditation and mindfulness are really important, uh, where we take time um, daily is best, you know, to slow down and to just be present. You know, any any practices that bring you into the present, whether it's meditation, and there are many forms of meditation, mantrams and just following your breath, uh, meditations, movement meditations like Tai Chi, Qigong, whatever, they force you to really... Notice where am I? What what am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling inside my body? What am I feeling on my skin, etc. As we practice those, it's a discipline. What happens is that becomes more of the way we are as we go through the day. I, I once asked a Tibetan Lama, "I said, uh, how many hours a day do you meditate?" He said, "I'm in meditation all day long." I said, but you're out here working and teaching. And he said, I know, but I'm still meditating, meaning I'm still 100% present to what's going on inside me and what's going on outside me. And so that came from, you know, years of sitting and, and, and developing that, that capacity. In the modern world, we can do things like set our, our iPhone or our smartphone, whatever, to go off every 25 minutes or every hour and just go bing. And all of a sudden we go, oh take a deep breath, pay attention. What am I experiencing? Um, so that we become more and more and more and more mindful of what we're tasting when we eat. We're not eating mindlessly. We're you know, paying attention. And so everything we do, whether it's washing the dishes, are we there really present with it or we're not? As we do that, then even when we're in meetings and we're doing things like you and I are doing right now with this podcast, there's still a level of presence that occurs. Now, one thing that I found really helpful in this whole thing about setting goals and striving versus just surrendering to what the universe puts in front of me was a little model that Reverend Michael Beckwith shared with me recently. And he talked about the four stages of spiritual development. And he called the first stage being a victim— and that's when you kind of say, oh, God, why why me? You know, you feel like the universe is doing it to you. You blame other people for your life. You feel that the world's out to get you. You're kind of paranoid. You know, life's unfair. And, and so you tend to be a complainer and a blamer and a whiner. And, and, and a lot of people live in that state of consciousness. If you then begin to learn— that there are some laws of the universe, like the law of attraction, like the law of of reciprocity, um, like the law of cause and effect, and so forth, then you can begin to actually cooperate with those laws and use them to your benefit to manifest the things you want. He calls that next stage the manipulator stage. And a lot of people that watch the movie The Secret or read the book The Secret, and people that are into consciousness work, learn to do things like visualization, affirmation, positive expectation, you know, being of in a positive vibration, and so on and so forth. And when you do that, life works better. You get more of what you want. Now, at some point, when all that's working, you begin to go, well, wait a second. If there are these universal laws... There must be something that put all that together. You know, there must be something that's holding this together. We'll call it God or infinite intelligence or universal love or source energy. Maybe it's wiser than I am. Maybe what I should be doing is surrendering to it. I'll surrender to what it. Puts in front of me, or what it tells me in my meditations. Maybe it wants me to, you know, be more outgoing, or call my brother, or be more compassionate to my husband, or to start a school in Africa. You know, whatever inner guidance we might get. You know, it's the not my will but Thy will stage, and he calls this the channel stage, where you're now channeling God's energy into the world because you're following your, your guidance. You're you're being guided. And then he calls the last stage the being stage, where you realize, well, I'm not channeling God. I also am God. I'm not all of God. Any more than one drop of water in the ocean is the whole ocean, but it's still ocean. And so th- th- that th- when you get to that stage, then you're just like you have a thought and it manifests. It's like we hear these gurus in India who can wave their hand and a ring falls out of it and it fits your finger. Um, you know, this instant manifestation because being this, th- that level of true being can manifest anything in a moment. I've actually seen that happen when I was in India. Someone manifested, It was wearing a t-shirt and no nothing on his arms or his hands. And he just put his hands out over mine and dropped a set of mala beads into my hand and went, holy mackerel. And yet I know that's possible. I've seen it. I was there. And so, you know, right now I would say I, I, my, my life is kind of maybe one third in the manipulator stage because I teach all this stuff of, you know, law of attraction and so forth. And about two thirds in the channel stage where I'm like, okay, Just guide me. I'll do what you want me to do next. And yet I still use the tools once I get the guidance that says, okay, you need to be training more trainers to bring this work to the world, or you need to be spending time helping this one school in Africa or whatever it is. I then can use those tools I've learned for manifestation in the manipulator stage to actually bring about those things that I've been guided to do. So they're always still a part of me.
0: Mm. That would have been amazing to witness that in India. How awesome.
1: Yeah, it was it was uh, quite <laughs> to this day it's still I mean they say the word amaze, and I love the word amaze. I looked it up once, and it said to get out of the maze. Because when we're in the maze, we're we're trapped, like, you, like the, rat in, the rat in the maze. And when something amazes you, it takes you out of one state of consciousness into a higher state of consciousness. So I know now it's possible. And uh, that then changes a lot of how you have to think about how energy and mind works in the universe.
0: Mm. It's very easy for people to kind of look at you and read your books and come to your seminars and create this idea in their mind that you don't have quote unquote issues or you don't have fear come up or you know you're just positive all the time <laughs> I'm curious to know when things do pop up for you how do you personally now move through those you know situations that someone could see as you know, quote unquote, an issue. How do you move through those or move through fear or resistance? How do you do that?
1: Well, I have a little phrase that I, I learned once and I also teach called, oh, what fun. So when something happens that you would rather not, like your plane is delayed, so you miss your connection or, you know, your car breaks down, you don't get to that meeting you wanted to get to, or your husband decides that he doesn't want to live with you anymore or whatever it is. um I say to myself, oh, what fun. And what I mean by that is there's something here I'm supposed to learn. And I've learned that over time, everything that I thought was a bad thing at one point turned into a good thing. Like about 20 years ago, I got a divorce. And uh, chicken soup was kind of in full bloom at that time. Um, We had about 14 or $15 million in the bank. And uh, my wife got all the money. And I got to keep my job because they valued my company at that, but I couldn't sell it for anybody. So all of a sudden, I'm wearing my shirts three days in a row before I send them to the laundry because I can't afford it. And here I am, you know, just was a multimillionaire a year before. And, and, and I, at first, I was really upset by the way the whole thing went down. And as I look back on it that, it was a gift to me. Because I was kind of getting a little bit lazy. And I was starting to say, well, you know, maybe I should retire a little bit. I shouldn't work so hard. This is, you know, whatever. And I wasn't stretching myself. I wasn't doing what I talked about before about setting goals that would require me to grow. And so all of a sudden, here I am. And now I've got to, I've got to really work again to, you know, create the, the life I wanted. And, and I, as a result of that, I ended up writing a book called The Success Principles, which I don't think I would have written otherwise. Now, that book changed my life. Chicken soup was great, people loved it, but it wasn't something they were going to hire me to come to Dubai to speak about, or Herbal Life in Chennai, India was going to hire me to come speak to 8,000 people in their downline, as happened to me a few years ago. They want to know about these success principles. And so that literally shifted my life. It's what got me on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday last year and so forth, and had I not had that divorce, I don't think I ever would have written that book. If I hadn't written that book, my whole life wouldn't have unfolded the way it's unfolded, which has been way more magical than I could have ever predicted. So everything that happens, I believe, happens for you, not against you. A friend of mine termed this inverse paranoia. You believe the world's out to do you good. And if you take that point of view, then when something "Quote unquote adverse happens," you say. "Hmm, I wonder what the lesson is. What quality am I supposed to develop? What what what, what do I need to learn here? Um, maybe I need to ask for help. I'm really not good at that, but now I really need to do it, and so it develops a new skill in me. So I think." The, the The key thing for me is the first is to to get out of thinking it shouldn't be happening. I don't know if you're familiar with Byron Katie's work, but it's it's phenomenal work that basically says the only thing that ever makes us unhappy is thinking things shouldn't be the way they are, that something shouldn't exist, that that person shouldn't have done that. We have half the people in America right now to think Donald Trump shouldn't be the president and um, and you know as far as intellectually, I would kind of agree with that. But if you if you get really attached to that belief, then you're going to be miserable, because he is the president. And so what happens is, if I can get to the place where I just go, well, what is, is, and I can work to change it, but not from a place of upset, but from a place of compassion, from a place of vision, then I'm great. But if I'm watching the news and getting upset about it, then it means I think that reality shouldn't be what it is, and that makes me unhappy. And my unhappiness is not the result of the 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 um, you know, result of the world being the way it is. It's the result of me believing it shouldn't be that way. So whatever happens to me, I first start with, well, this is the way it is. There must be some purpose for it. My job is to figure it out and not fight with it. And then you do the things you need to do. If your plane got canceled, you reroute. If you can't make it where you're supposed to go, you let people know. And you also know that this is not the only opportunity that's ever going to happen. Um, and the other thing I always tell people is you have survived everything that ever happened to you. I don't care what it was, how horrendous it was, you're still here. And if you've survived all that, you're going to survive the next thing just as well. So if you come from that position, then nothing really pulls the rug up from under you. It just means you have to re-vector, regroup, and then do something different to move in the direction of where you want to go.
0: Mm, I love that so much. And I'm going to steal that phrase. Oh, what fun, because it softens <laughs> the situation as well. And it makes you kind of go, okay, oh, goody, What, you know, what's the lesson in this and kind of go searching for it. So I'm going to definitely steal that phrase. So with the success principles, I'm curious to know, is there one common trait between these highly successful people that you know? Is there one common trait amongst all these people?
1: No, not really. I mean, I, I can give you a few and I will. You know, often people will say to me things like, is there one common trait? Is there one success principle that's more important than the other? And I always respond by saying, you know, Melissa, if you can only keep one organ in your body, which one would you keep? And, you know, whatever you pick, it wouldn't be enough. You, you're going to die because you need your heart, you need your lungs, you need your liver, you need your spleen, you know, you need your brain, whatever. And so we are a system, um, you know, very sophisticated human system and 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 the world system and so forth. And so for me, when I what I did when I was writing my book, I, I was inspired to write it partly because I, I, I needed to do a new project. But I was there, my son said to me one day, he said, Dad, why do we live in a bigger house than most of the other people I know? Why are we rich? And he was about 12. And I said, well, there's a bunch of principles that I've applied in my life, and and these are what they are. He said, will you teach them to me? I said, sure. So I I, I sat in bed one morning with my computer. He was sitting next to me with his, and I... I spent about three hours looking at what are all the principles that I applied in my life that have gotten me where I am. I ended up with 112, which is way too many. And so I narrowed it down to about 65 of them that I thought were really important. And then I wanted to make sure they weren't just you know, idiosyncratic to me, but they were universal or not. So I interviewed seventy-five of the most successful people in North America. Everyone from newspaper publishers, uh, best-selling authors, Emmy and Oscar-winning actors and actresses, generals in the military, top politicians, top salespeople, and on and on. And I wanted to know, you know, which of these principles had you applied in your life, or what what was common with you, with me. And what I found was there there was a, a lot of things that were very common. I, I'll share with you, I think, the most important ones. The first one was people believed that they had what it took to get what they wanted. They had the I can uh, uh, mentality, and they believed they deserved it. And now a lot of this came because they grew up that way. Some people came from very impoverished situations, often with abusive parents. But even in the middle of that, they believed. I I just read about a girl recently who grew up in the ghetto in L.A. She had to take three buses to get from her uh, welfare housing to a school that she wanted to go to. And she would have to leave home like at five in the morning to get to school by eight o'clock. And then it was three hours to get back again. And then she would study. All night, and here she was, young black girl in the middle of poverty, her parents had never gone to graduate high school, and she ends up getting into Harvard. Something in her said, "I can do this now what i 've learned is that anybody can decide I can do this. you just have to make the decision." The second thing is that these people take 100% responsibility for their lives. They're not blamers. They're not complainers. They're not whiners. And they they, they realize if it's meant to be, it's up to me. And so that's a very critical mental attitude or mindset that you have to have. And again, that's a choice. You can choose to believe that or not. I always ask my students, just act as if for the next 60 days that everything that happens to you, either created it, promoted it, or allowed it, however bizarre it is. And then tell me at the end of 60 days what what's what's different. And everyone comes back and says, oh, my God, my whole life is changing. Because they're changing the focus from blaming others and complaining about things to saying, well, if I don't like it the way it is, I've got to do something to make it the way I want it. The other thing is they've all chosen an outcome, a goal, whether it's spiritual fulfillment, or become a millionaire, or write a best-selling book, or become a coach with fifty clients, or to travel the world and see, you know, the Taj Mahal and the Great Wall of China, whatever it might be, they 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 do have goals. Sometimes they're not always like specific and measurable, but they're really clear about what the vision of their ideal life looks like. They've taken time to sit down and think about that. Um, they trust themselves. They trust their inner guidance. They trust their ideas. They trust what they're attracted to. They We talked about earlier, they're, they're, they trust their authenticity. They're not trying to be somebody they're not. And then they take act, they're take they action-oriented. They're people that are willing to take action. And, and here's a key part is they're open to feedback. In other words, they know everything's not going to work. They're wel- they, they welcome feedback. They don't get defensive about it. You know, one of the questions I use in my work and in my family, with my kids, with my wife, with my staff, and with my clients, is on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate, then you can fill in the blank, this podcast, me as a husband, me as a father, me as a son, me as an employee, this seminar, this book I just wrote, whatever. The reason Chicken Soup for the Soul was so successful is every story that ever appeared in that book, uh, any of the books, we had over 200 books, was read by at least 40 people, and we had black, white, urban, suburban, rural, conservative, uh, liberal, um, agnostics, every religion you can think of, and different age groups. And if, if if the average score came back less than a nine, it didn't get into a book. And, then, and many of the stories I wrote didn't make it, because we were looking for feedback to say, what is universal? What's going to really move people? What's going to inspire them? And so we have to be open to feedback. And they also surround themselves with positive people. And they are people that, you know, they surround themselves with a team that supports them. And finally, I'd say they're, they're learners. They are committed to growing and learning. They read, they take seminars, they watch podcasts, they watch TED Talks. Um, you know, they're, they're constantly learning from their experience as well as from what they learn from other people's experience. One of my great mentors was a man who was worth $600 million back in 1970. So that'd be worth over probably $2 billion today. And he said, there's two things that'll get you ahead in life. OPE and OPM. And I said, what's that mean? He says, learn from other people's experiences. You don't have to go to war to learn that war sucks. Just talk to people who've been in one. You don't have to learn the hard way, all the mistakes you can make to become successful. A lot of people have made those and they've written books and they've run seminars. Learn from them. And then other people's money. You know, if you don't have enough money to start something, borrow it. Get investors. Don't be afraid to ask. So those are some of the principles that I've I've discovered that are really critical. And the the nice thing about those, Melissa, every one of those things, every one of us has the capacity to manifest. It's simply a choice either to believe it or to do it. And we all can learn to do that. We all can be much more successful as a result.
0: Mm, I agree. It's so interesting. Last night over dinner, we uh, have a little game. I have an 11-year-old stepson and we have a little game that we play where we go around and we say three things that we're grateful for. Every so often I get Leo, his name is, I get him to rate me as a parent. And I said to him on a scale of one to 10, how have I showed up? Bless his gorgeous little soul. He always says ten. <laughs> he always says ten. And I'm like, but darling, I want to grow and I want to learn. And he's like, No, you guys are the best parents ever. You know, I'm waiting for the day where he gives me a score less than ten. But it's really interesting that you do that with your family and and
1: your team. Well, once he's fifteen, I promise you you'll get at least a seven.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, I thought it was very sweet that you did that too.
1: No, it is very sweet. I mean I, I just spent time with my four year old grandson, but I just my only grandson. And um I just love kids. They're so beautiful and so um I, just, I don't know, they're so creative and they, things that come out of their mouths. We got caught in a rainstorm and we all got totally wet. We got back to the hotel and he lives nearby, but we were it was our night to take him so the parents his parents could go out for a for movie and a dinner and and he we get back and he goes that ring was intense. And out of a, the mouth of a four-year-old, that just blew me away, you know, and it's constantly surprising us. And uh, uh, that's great. Little Leo, good for you.
0: No, oh, And how many kids do you have?
1: I have three sons. Uh, they're 43, 40, and 26 And uh, the oldest one is a drummer and an artist and living in Brooklyn. He's the father of my grandson. His wife's a photographer. And then my middle son is a hip-hop artist, believe it or not, up in San Francisco. And he's got his own group and a recording studio and doing very well. And then my youngest son is in music school at the Berklee School of Music in Boston, which is one of the finer music schools on the planet. And he's studying voice. He's a singer. And then I have two stepchildren, one 26, who's in business school at the moment, and a daughter who's 23, who's still finding herself.
0: Wow. A very musical, lots of music. I'm curious to know, is that something you're really interested in?
1: I've always been that way. I sang in the glee club in high school. I played guitar. I was in a little rock group in a country, kind of a folk singing group. And I still play the guitar. I use it more for chanting in my workshops and doing things like that. I also have uh, taken some piano lessons. I, I have two regrets in life. One is that I uh, didn't study a martial art. And the other is that I didn't learn to play the piano when I was younger. And um, so I'm. they've got all these home study courses for playing the piano where the computer lights up the keys. And so I play for a little bit every day.
0: I love that you're doing it now. It's never too late, hey?
1: Never too late. Never too late.
0: I'm curious to know, what is one thing that you're currently working on within yourself?
1: I would say uh, several things. One is drinking more water. I realize I get so wiped out uh, because I get I, I get so engrossed in what I'm doing, I forget to drink water. And um, dehydration is not a good thing. So I literally... Uh, have like water bottles and glasses everywhere, so I'm drinking more water. I think it's kind of mundane, but it's what, what one of the things I'm working on. The other thing I would say is I'm working on taking more time off. I've been a I won't call it a workaholic, but I've just been really busy, busy, busy most of my life in a way that I've enjoyed it, but I'm seeing now, I'm 72. And um, so I'm just starting to say, you know, I should really take more time. Like my wife and I just, just about a month ago, we decided we're taking a whole month off next year. We're going to rent a house in Hawaii and just live on the beach and do nothing. Going to turn off the Wi-Fi, read novels, binge watch TV, do yoga, meditate, maybe do a little writing because I feel like I want to, not because I have to. And um, so we're going to start doing more of these longer periods of time off. And I've, my staff has gotten to the place now; they can do a lot of the things I used to do. Um, I would say another big challenge for me is, is um, I ruptured my uh, a, a, vertebra, was it, a disc in my back between my fourth and fifth vertebrae about. Five, six years ago. So I haven't been able to exercise at the same level. I used to jog and do all that. Now I do the elliptical and things, but I'm not exercising as much as I used to. And, but I'm still eating like I used to. So I put on about 20 pounds that I shouldn't have. So I'm working on that. I've gotten five pounds off and um, I'm feeling proud about that and got a little ways to go. So, you know, I have the little things that everyone else struggles with. There's, I like food. I actually drink wine, not a lot, but I, I enjoy it. And it's basically just sugar water. So I've had to learn to uh, moderation with that. I'm trying and think. That's about it. And I would say the last thing is... Learning to not judge judgmental people, which is so funny, you know, because I I don't want to be judgmental. Mostly I'm not. But when people are really judgmental, I find myself judging them. So it's like not judging the judgers. That's that's (laughs) one of my internal challenges at the moment. But I'm getting better at it.
0: Now, let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides all of your books, let's pretend they're already in the curriculum. If you could choose one other book, what would it be?
1: That's a really good question because I would have picked my own book, not because I need to sell more of them, but I really think there's so much value in it. Well, just a book that pops into my mind. I, I I read it recently. It was called The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy, who's the publisher of Success Magazine. And what he teaches in that book is if you do a little more of something every day, let's say you're a baseball player and you go to batting practice and there's a batting cage and there's that... Thing you know the, the the machine that shoots out balls for you to hit, and the average guy might go in there and hit like you know fifty balls after practice. Well, if you go in there and you hit seventy balls you've hit 20 more. And if you do that every day for five days a week, that's 100 more. And if you do that for a year, that's 5,000 more. And if you do that your entire high school career, that's 20,000 more. You're going to be better than the average player just by shooting, you know, hitting 20 more. The same thing is true if you just read an extra five pages. If you just exercise for an extra 10 minutes or do 10 more push-ups or whatever, That the compound effect over time of little tiny additions of, of disciplined behavior make a huge difference in your life. So that one springs to mind. So that's what I'll say.
0: That's great. We're teaching Leo about compounding interest at the moment. Oh, very good. Yeah. So, you know, when he he earns money for his chores and how we can make that grow. So that's very interesting. I'll have to uh, suggest that book to him too. So let's talk about how your morning routine looks. I am obsessed with people's morning routines, how they'll prime themselves for the day. Do you have any non-negotiables and things that set you up for the day?
1: Yes, I do. Um, I, I, I practice and I teach something called the hour of power, which is uh, 20 minutes of meditation. And usually it's longer than that for me because I get into it and then I'm just kind of in there and enjoying it. As I come out of it, I visualize uh, my goals. Um, I, say, I have affirmations that I say, and then I'll visualize the goal is already complete, and I'll feel the feelings I would feel if I had already achieved it. And then I will um, do a gratitude exercise as part of that, you know, maybe three, four minutes of just being grateful, thinking about the things I'm grateful for. I, I might do that with my eyes closed, or I might get up and walk around. And just notice everything that I'm grateful for. Grateful for the fact that there's a carpet on the floor, that there's um, a meditation bench I can sit on. So I'm not on the floor. As I look out my window, I see our rose garden and grateful for the gardeners that we have that come by and take care of them and grateful for the rain we just had. We've had a three year drought in California, that kind of thing. Just continually, continually noticing what I'm grateful for. And then I do 20 minutes of. Exercise, uh, I do what's called high intensity interval training. So it's like a one or two minutes going full out either on a, my, my bicycle. I have a home gym. So my bicycle or the elliptical or this thing. It's like a stair stepper and then like a minute or two of rest. And then again, do two, I do that for 20 minutes. So like, you know, about. 10 repetitions of that, really powerful. And then a minimum of 20 minutes of reading something uplifting. And I usually end up doing a little more than that also because I get hooked by what I'm reading. Um, Some days on the weekends, you know, it'll be an hour of meditation, an hour of exercise or a long walk with my wife, and then uh, reading for a couple of hours. I also make sure I write every day. Um, If I don't write every day, I get out of the practice of it, and then I fall behind. So I like to write for at least a minimum of an hour. I told you about my breakfast, which is basically just a blender drink of uh, protein powder and some other powders, either some kind of fruit, usually blueberries or strawberries, occasionally a banana, and um, take a bunch of vitamins and herbs, take a shower, and go to work.
0: And what are you currently reading?
1: I am currently reading about 20 books at the same time, which is a bad (laughs) habit I have. (laughs) But... I'm, I'm, I'm reading books about the telomere effect, which is uh, longevity. I'm reading a lot about longevity now. I'm reading a number of books on love uh, by different authors, uh, both Indian gurus and Western psychologists. If you were to see the stack of books next to my bed, you'd, you'd gasp. My wife constantly says, can we get that out of the bedroom? And I'll go, no, it's what I do. <laughs> you married me. You knew it. Um, but I, I, am I'm, I'm reading a book called unlimited memory, which is teaching a memory techniques uh, of the people that can memorize like, you know, 50 numbers in a row. And I'm always just wanting to get better at everything. I'm also fascinated by past lives and by near-death experiences. So I'm, I'm reading a couple of books about that at the moment. Um, I'm going to recommend a book I recommend readers should read. Um, it's a new book. I actually wrote the foreword to it. It's a new book that came out uh, from Hay House, and it's called The Boy Who Knew Too Much. And it's by a mother whose boy at the age of three and a half started saying, when I was big, I used to play baseball. And she said, you mean when you're going to be big? She said, no, when I was big. And it's a it's an amazing story. It reads better than a novel because she's a really good writer. Um, she was very kind of conservative Christian. At first, she was very weirded out by this. But I won't give away the whole story, but it, it's it's a great read uh, that leads to the fact that her son is a reincarnated baseball player. That's a very famous name that everyone would recognize, but I don't want to say it because take away some of the fun of the book. But um, The Boy Who Knew Too Much by Catherine, Kathy Bird. And um, uh, Wayne Dyer was supposed to write the before Wayne died. And so um, she was taking a workshop with me and started talking about the book and I shared with her, I've had recall of many of my own past lives, and I've been studying these near-death experiences since I was in high school. And so um, she asked me to write the foreword, and I was grateful to do it. But it's a book that's just taking off in America, and so I would recommend that to people.
0: I can't wait. I'm definitely going to check that out. Thank you for sharing that. Now, what are three things you're most recently grateful for?
1: Oh, seeing my grandson and how healthy he is and how much my son loves him. My son, um, I got divorced when he was very young, and so it had a negative impact on his life, and he was very pessimistic and negative for a lot of years. And um, I had a psychic tell me that uh, the reason um, he had my grandson was that he would learn how to love And the reason is that he couldn't learn to love from an adult because he didn't trust adults. And I've watched over the last four years my son, who's 43, go from being somewhat of a curmudgeon to being an amazingly beautiful young man. 43, young. I'm 72. I can say young, but... Um, so I'm grateful to watch that transformation occur. Um, there, he loves that boy with an amazing amount of love, and it's opened up and it's spread out throughout his whole life. So I'm very grateful about that. I'm grateful that I've been in the last month and a half. I've I've been to Poland, Estonia, Finland, Russia, back to Russia, back to. Canada, and back to Canada again, St. John's, Philadelphia, back to Canada and here running workshops all over the place. And that people hire me to come to these amazing places and teach them and then treat me like I'm a god when I'm there. So that's, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have that experience. And I'm grateful for my wife, who's an amazing being, who, um, It's also a great-grandmother, and we just had so much fun being in New York for four and a half days with our grandson. So uh, mostly people. I'm just surrounded by great people and experiences like that.
0: Mm, A reflection of you. So that's really beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. I just have a few more questions. In your opinion, what is one of the most important things that we can do for our health?
1: Well, God, there are several. Number one, get enough sleep. You know, there's just more and more research now that, that most of the modern world is sleep-deprived. You know, Ariana Huffington wrote a really good book called Sleeping, and um, it's just, just the research is out there. I remember when I was writing The Success Principles, I interviewed a professor at the University of—it was Cornell University in New York, and I was interviewing him about sleep. And I was going to write a chapter called Sleep Your Way to Success, and which was kind of a play on the casting couch idea, but really about getting enough sleep. And he was sharing with me that the difference between the 4.0 students, the A students in college, and the 3.0 and the 2.5 and so forth, is that he did this research with him. He found that all the 4.0 students took copious notes, reviewed them the same day they took them, which I never did. I never looked at my notes again until about you know, a week before exams. And they got eight hours sleep every night which I also never did. I would stay up and hang out with kids and play pool and drink beer and go to the fraternity and all that stuff. Got about six hours of sleep and I was lucky, which allowed me to graduate from the half of the class in college that made the top half possible, as I always like to say. And so for me, I would say sleep is really critical. Water, most people are not drinking enough water. We talked about that. I would say that most of our food today is denatured. And that we need to be supplementing our diets with uh, you know, vitamins and minerals and herbs and things like that. Um, even organic food today is not as um, healthy as it used to be 50 years ago. So it's important that we really understand the, the nutritional aspects of our body. And I would say also having a positive mental attitude. We know that resentment and fear and negativity actually has a very toxic effect on the body. And I would think the other thing I would finally say is cleansing. You know we need to detox the body on some kind of regular basis. You know, I cleanse at least one day a month. I don't need anything. I just drink water, and then twice a year, I 'll do wheatgrass enemas and and do nothing but juices for a whole week and because it it builds up, our body often can't get rid of the toxins fast enough that's in our air, it's in our water, it's in our food, it's in the dry cleaning that comes back it's in the lipstick you put on your mouth. Uh, most lipsticks have anywhere from 30 to 40 known carcinogens that are being absorbed through your lips, which is one of the most uh, absorptive places in our our, uh, body. So, and finally, I say read, you know, learn about health. Most people don't spend enough time learning about it.
0: And what is one of the most important things that you could do for wealth? When I'm talking about wealth, I'm referring to, you know, what you do in the world.
1: Well, I, you mentioned with Leo, teaching him about the, the effect of compound interest. You know, I would say um, definitely taking a portion of your income, and I don't care how small it is, and investing it in something that produces interest, that produces a, a return on your investment, whether it's a bond or a stock or a company or real estate. I mean, you can do the research on the things you think are going to work for you, but basically, uh, most people they don't they don't save and they don't invest. And you know, there was a book written by Richard Buck called "The Automatic Millionaire." If you just take ten percent of the average salary of the you know twenty year old, and you start putting that away, you automatically be a millionaire by the time you're sixty five. Now, today, a million dollars isn't really what it used to be many many years ago. Um, Being a millionaire doesn't really necessarily give you financial freedom. It does in some countries, but not most of the modern world. And so I would say, number one, read and study about earning more. And also make sure you take a portion of everything you earn and uh, invest it for yourself. And what a lot of people would say is also take a portion and tithe it to um, the betterment of other people, whether it's through your church if you do those three things, you're guaranteed to end up much more abundant.
0: And what is one of the most important things that we can do for love, more love in our life, in our relationships, more self-love? What's one thing we could do?
1: Well, for more self-love, I, I, I teach a little exercise called the mirror exercise, where every night before you go to bed, you stand in front of a mirror I recommend you do it alone with with the door closed because it sounds weird. And you talk to yourself for a few minutes and you start by saying your name and then you appreciate yourself. And I, I think of three areas that you should appreciate yourself. Number one, anything you accomplished or achieved that day. Number two, for any disciplines you kept. And number three, for any temptations you didn't surrender to. And after all of that, you end by saying, I love you and you're making eye contact with yourself the whole time, and especially after you say, I love you, to hold that eye contact and to allow it in as well as saying it out. So you want to kind of be both the giver and receiver at the same time. That exercise, if done for a minimum of 60 days, has a hugely transformational effect on people. I teach it in all my seminars. We now have it being taught in a lot of rehab centers around the world, uh, schools and so forth. And... You know, if I were doing it tonight, it might sound like, you know, Jack, I want to acknowledge you today for, um, you know, getting up early in the morning. You uh, wrote for uh, an hour. You did three interviews today. You handled all the emails that you planned to handle. You did your hour of power. You ate really healthy, you didn't eat dessert tonight, you didn't stay up playing video games. You didn't watch the news and get all bummed out about how bad everything is in the world. Uh you are going to bed at a reasonable hour. And one more thing I want you to know, I really love you. And then just hold that. And I swear to God, that it, it sounds weird. That's why I always say close the door. Don't, you know, tell other people you're doing it by the way, so they don't catch you and think you've lost it. But it is so Powerful. And I tell people, you can't let in more love from other people than you give yourself. And so if you want love, you have to give love to yourself and to others.
0: Mm, I'm going to definitely try that exercise. It sounds beautiful.
1: Yeah. Teach it to Leo too. It's powerful.
0: I will do. Absolutely. And finally, this is my last question. And I want to ask you, what is one thing that I personally can do and the listeners can do to serve you today?
1: I would say two things. Number one, if you've not read my book, The Success Principles, I would really encourage you to do it. Nobody that's read it has ever regretted it. I have a money-back guarantee. If you buy it and you don't like it, send it to me, and I'll send your money back, even though you didn't buy it from me. Never had anyone do that. And I've had people literally read that book and get out of halfway houses, get off of welfare, stop being homeless. I was in the Philippines, and I gave a homeless person my book. And I came back three years later, and he was walked into my seminar. He had 12 people following him wearing uh, shirts with the same logo on it. He was now the number one motivational speaker in the Philippines, made over a million dollars the last year at his own radio show. I said... What, what did you do? He said, "I did everything you said in the book." You know, so, I would th- that helps me not because I'm making another dollar twenty cents, but because I know I'm making a difference, which is what my life is dedicated to. And the other thing would be, if you went to my website and checked out my Train the Trainer online program, we're now training people to teach this work. We used to always be live. It was a three week training. You had to come to America to do it. It was very expensive. And when I was in the Gulf over, you know, in places like Oman and Dubai and Qatar and Bahrain and Kuwait. People say, we can't get visas to come to America. You've got to put it online. So we developed a digital version. It's a 40 hour course of how to teach this material to other people. There, there's about 20 success principles that we cover and how to teach it experientially with exercises and activities. You get all the slides you need. You get all the worksheets for a workbook. You get all the word-for-word scripts. Plus, you're watching me do it. You can always, you have 24-hour access to the website, uh, to the you know the program for the rest of your life forever. Uh, so whenever you want to teach something, you can go back and watch me do it so you can you know get, get back in the groove of it. And our goal is to have a million people teaching this by the year 2030. So a million people. And if everyone, if we get a million people and they all teach a thousand people a year, in eight years we'll reach the entire planet. And hopefully we can turn this planet around and have everyone living in harmony, love, peace, and joy. So if you're interested in making a difference and you think that my vibration, you're attracted to that in this work, I would really encourage you to go to jackcampfield.com and check it out. Again, not because I need any more money, but because I want to see more transformation in the world
0: well we will link to everything that we have said in the show notes so everyone can head there and grab all of that information but i just want to say thank you so much this has been so beautiful. You have such an amazing energy. I can feel it even though it's through the computer. You have such a beautiful energy. I'm so grateful that you gave me your time to have this conversation. From the bottom of my heart, I'm deeply grateful. And just thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. I'm, I'm so grateful that I got to have this conversation with you. So thank you.
1: Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity to share. I appreciate it, Melissa.
0: What a beautiful human being, so full of wisdom and just radiating love from his heart. I don't know about you guys, but I could definitely feel it. And I can't wait to try out his mirror self-love exercise. And I want to encourage you to also try it out. Give it a go for a week and see how you feel and let me know in the comments under the show notes how you go with it. I'm very, very interested. And if you loved today's episode as much as I did, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes because that means we can inspire more people together. And also get on more epic humans, just like Jack. So don't forget also to tell me on Twitter who you would like me to interview and make sure you tag me at Mel underscore Ambrosini and the person you want me to interview using the hashtag The Melissa Ambrosini Show. And for everything that we mentioned in the podcast today, you can check out in the show notes and that's at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 23. And you can also listen to all my other podcast episodes there. So before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for showing up for yourself today and for wanting to be the best version of yourself. You inspire me so much. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.